Hi, everybody, and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you doing this evening? David, I'm I'm pretty good. I just I, I've been enjoying some snippets of odd news in just the last few moments. Apparently, a three-legged bear in Florida broke into a house and helped itself to some white claws, hard seltzer. And I thought, you know, if I were the marketing director of White Claws, I, I don't know what I could possibly ask for. And then I just noticed that the senior police uh, officer authority in Philadelphia has resigned. And her name is her last name is Outlaw. Commissioner Outlaw has resigned in Philadelphia. I just think that's hilarious. And then also, because we do have a great love for Fortrian things, I did want to hearken back to the book I recommended last time called The Cold Vanish, about missing persons in America's national parks and wilderness areas. Because one of the things which the author has uncovered and which I verified to my own satisfaction is that one of the great database sources of information about people who go missing in uh, the outlands of America comes from Bigfoot watchers, Bigfoot hunters. They apparently have a very, very fine database that has been very helpful in a range of, of investigations, whether criminal or, or more benign. But law enforcement agencies and families of missing people are turning to uh, the Bigfoot database. And I think that is just a wonderful Lost Explorers analogy for uh Something that is counterintuitive, you know, you wouldn't expect some fringe people, some of whom might be truly loony, some of them very serious, some of them proper, you know, uh, outside scientists, and some people just having fun in the outdoors. But here they have a community where they really are being alert to what's going on, and they're feeding back information into a database that has brought some help and, and relief and some cases peace of mind to families of people who've gone missing. So I, I kind of, uh, those sort of sum up my mood of savoring some wackiness, enjoying the lost explorers counterintuitive nature of the world and trying to find solace and energy in those directions rather than uh, anger, frustration, and total despair in uh, some of our other obvious directions available today. So how are you? Well, according to Fox 5 Atlanta, this is a headline that I read today. Delta flight from Atlanta forced to return after passenger reportedly suffers diarrhea on plane. And there is a video attached of the aftermath of the diarrhea and oh it no. is atrocious. Uh, I think that anybody who's ever been on a plane after eating some bad seafood or maybe drinking too much the night before has had the daydream, the nightmare, very similar to showing up 
to to a classroom naked of being trapped on a plane unable to leave your seat and then having explosive diarrhea well it looks like this person attempted to make a run for the bathroom and just did not make it because it is all up and down the aisles i don't know what this person ate i don't know how that much came out of one human being but oh david oh david i think you might have to take it. i'm i'm trying to wonder you know i'm i'm all I'm trying to wonder i am wondering what the underlying message is here can you lead us out of this to somewhere of 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 hope and, and a kind of restored order or are we stuck on this plane with this projectile diarrhea well, if you want to look at it in a positive way, I'm sure they felt better afterwards. Yes. I'm not <laughs> sure about the fellow passengers. I I, I am concerned about this as, a, as an opening scenario in response to my question, how are you? So ha, let me ask you this then. With whom do you identify in this scenario? Are you the unfortunate uh passenger or the other the uh, more unfortunate fellow passengers perhaps who who lead us through this depends on the day and what i ate that day i suppose no i um no that's just a funny story i'm doing well i came down with a little head cold obviously you know back into the ecosystem children are everywhere so i caught my first minor I don't get very sick. I, I tend to take pretty good care of myself. But on Friday, I had a bit of a sore throat. Saturday and Sunday, I had to move all of my stuff from my garage in Edmond to a storage unit in Lawton. And that was probably the peak of not feeling great, but there's no other day to do it. So I think that today going to school, I was I was a little bit out of it. And I'll tell you a funny story about how out of it I was. I slipped up. Uh, luckily, my my class laughed it off, but it was embarrassing when I said it. So teaching the crucible, there's a scene where the character of Mary Warren uh, is being accused by Abigail Williams of being possessed by the devil. And the way that Abigail does that is by telling her that... Uh, there's a yellow bird that's following her around and the yellow bird is the devil and the yellow bird is going to try to possess all the girls. So I stopped the students and I say, why do you think that Miller chose to make the bird yellow? And it's a chance for me to, to tell them that yellow was a slang for being cowardly, right? Well, I hear these two boys kind of chuckle to themselves and they say, maybe it was an Asian bird. I decide to ignore that, right? And right. decide, and instead, I just decide to reiterate the question. Well, with my head fog the way it is, I say to the class, come on, guys, think about it. Why did Arthur Miller choose to make this bird Asian? Whoops. So I completely just heard their racist joke and then accidentally reiterated and one girl turned her head very slowly and i said oh sorry that was because of you guys over there being funny uh and then moved on so hopefully by tomorrow my cognitive function is back up i think that the um 
you know, the diarrhea plane might just be the inside of my mind right now. That might be, that might be where the metaphor is. Yeah. Look, I understand. I, I think that for people who haven't, um, been in front of young people in a classroom sort of sense it's very very different than being on stage in in a you know a kind of adult performance sense or uh it really is its own environment and it it mm -hmm. it, it has a level of of pressure um and it's very interesting what younger people will pay attention to and what they don't pay attention to. And this is something that really I'm looking into for the memory and alertness book, because it has a lot to do with certain a certain band of social rules and protocols that, that they're listening for, or certain impacts that they want to have, you know, putting in the, you know, the funny remark or, mm -hmm. or the outright heckle from time to time. Uh, but it's an attention to, uh, a very, very limited sphere of a status and shame and issues that they're tuned into more than other, and they miss so much because of of that that focus. And of course, that is one of the problems also of being front and center as the teacher. They are looking, you know, at a very certain way and a lot of teachers never finally get on top of the fact that that they are not really there mm -hmm. that they are you know they are a medium you know it takes a lot for a teacher to actually really be present to get through the filtration system of these you know young very insecure uncertain uh not always fully participatory young minds you know what I found about the ones, uh, what I found about the my my last hour of the day, of course, everybody is tired from being at school for eight hours at that point. But, you know, my eighth hour really wasn't um, responding the way that I wanted them to. And then I read their first essays and I realized that, oh, this class uh, in terms of their writing capabilities is actually above most of my other classes. So it clicked for me, oh, these are all what you might call slightly more advanced kids, right? And the reason why they're quiet is because because they are intelligent like that. And I'm not saying the other students aren't intelligent, but you know what I mean. Um, mm. Because they're at that level, they don't want to say anything that could be wrong because their security depends on being smart. So once I figured that out, I was able to break through to them, basically, just by giving them a bit of praise here and there, right? Like yeah. when they're well, quiet, yeah. just saying like, hey, I know you guys are smart. Come on. I read your essays. Can't You can't fool me. So much of it, the whole deal is just about encouragement uh, and, 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 and the rebuilding of, of self-esteem and it it's hard to accept that, but I think that if you go into that, that, that basic practical human understanding, everything starts to function more, you know, smoothly. It's just, there's, and it's, it, it's amazing, you know, uh, but that's where we're at today is really just uh, dealing with a lot of unstable 
fearful, but nevertheless, very good, you know, often very good hearted and, and very, you know, with young people with a lot of potential, you know, it's not, mm -hmm. it really isn't their fault the way that, that, you know, there's a certain thing going on. And we were probably all, you know, I, I was probably much more susceptible to that then than I, that I'm willing to remember now, you know, in certain ways. Um, I really don't think so, but I think still there would have been, you know, teachers then who who thought that, you know, sure. Well, that's a pretty Absolutely. good report. I'm, I'm, I'm pleased. I, I think I, you know, anybody who's involved in teaching is doing something that only other people who are involved in teaching can really understand. And it's, mm -hmm. it's gotten very, very complicated. And there are some extremely good reasons why we have such a teacher shortage in America. And while we, you know, why we're heading for an absolute crisis in five years time. Um, mm -hmm. there, there are multiple reasons for that. And it's very, um, it's dire, you know, it's really dire what's, what's happening. So I think that, that teachers are only to be applauded. And that includes the woman next door to me at my early morning class from seven. I came out at the end. She goes, what are you doing in there? And I said, what do you mean? I mean, we're, we're a little boisterous, perhaps. And, uh, and then I, I did say, you know, at least I don't put on a video for 40 minutes or have total strained silence, the sound of, of boredom and disengagement. And then I just walked off, you know. I mean, yeah, I, my classes. Are yeah, boring. fuck her. She sucks. Um do you have a bad and an aphorism? I do. And I, I think that it's time to kind of, you know, head back to, uh, well, you know, something pretty straightforward. So I've got a, well, here's the deal. It's a girl group, mm -hmm. classic girl group, but they really are biological females. And this has become kind of uh, a, a surprising, you know, level of contentiousness. But they're called the Ronchettes. And uh, they've been kind of inspired by this chick I found on TikTok, who I actually made a pitch to come on, you know, possibly come on at some point as a guest on this show. Because she's only 20 she apparently lives in Florida, I think. And she's this kind of just cute blonde. But she has a program of, of relationship advice, which is, I think, hilarious from a 20-year-old. But it's entirely pro-male in a weird way. And it's a message mm -hmm. either to, she's saying to, you know, women, ladies, you should, you know, if you want, you know, or to men, if your girl isn't doing or a gal isn't doing this, then you should, well, maybe give me a call. But I think it's completely wonderfully innocent, but I also think it's it's highly subversive. I can't believe she's serious because she really is recommending stuff that I think young heterosexual men are desperate to hear and they're not hearing. They're mm -hmm. not hearing. 
And I think it's very interesting. So she was a little bit of the inspiration for the Ronchettes. Their album is called Hold My Tongue. And their first single is Backdoor Deliveries. And uh, it's kind of just a celebration of this crazy TikTok influencer who I think is on to something remarkable. Just, uh, I find it very difficult to not go, yeah, I like, yeah, I, I do agree with that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and I think there'd be some women who would just be, you know, just their heads would be blowing up. But mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. it's it's funny and it is genuinely subversive. And it made me think, too, about this is something that is really, I think, the problem with uh, the whole woke movement when it moves into the art realm is that it's completely lacking in surprise. And that question right. of. Is this straight or is this subversive? Is what's, you know, you, you get that confusion that to me is the heart of Ooh. the art experience. Oh, I like that. I've never heard it put quite that way. But I think that is one of the most succinct way. I'm going to use that from now on. The problem with the woke movement is that it never allows for subversion. You can't be subversive and woke no. at the same time. And for people who connect with art on that level, like you and I do, I mean, that's probably one of the first things that interests me. Uh, Absolutely. You you find the the movement outside of it being cloying and uh, an annoying and what have you, right? Um, before all that, it's just it's just not interesting. Because you, it's not going. It's 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 about as interesting as a Christian bookstore. It's entirely predictable. It's entirely yeah. predictable because the whole uh, rubric of of points of view is entirely predetermined. So there's nothing, you know. It and it, therefore it's rhetorically uh, ineffectual in the extreme. It will only work on reinforcing. Uh, amongst the the ranks of 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 the loyal which in this case is often really the ranks of, of people who are fearful you know of being yeah. non-conformist and it ties back into the, <laughs> the some of the themes of in the crucible that you've been teaching so yeah that's my uh that's my band there they are a, a classic girls group but kind of reinvented in this strange era where everything's so formerly natural now seems kind of new or subversive or it has to have some sort of explanation but here's my aphorism which ties in with this um today someone can be decisively on the mental illness spectrum and not stand out and that was one of many that I, I, I generated was thinking about, but I like that because it is so um, well, it's prosaic and it, it seems uh, kind of innocent. And yet when you think about it, I think it, there is a very strange degree of truth to it now. 
And it raises a lot of questions then about the, you know, our definitions of, of mental illness, our notions of spectra or spectrums, which are seem to be applied across, you know, so many categories now. And the weird thing about standing out or not standing out, you know, so many people want to stand out. That's what TikTok is all about. And, uh, I was thinking, though, about one of my conversations with homeless people. I've got now about oh, 300 hours I've recorded in um, six or seven different cities in a couple of small towns. And one fellow, you know, I asked him what his definition of sanity was. And he said, not calling too much attention to yourself, you know. And I think that is a really good way to then through our process of inversion, ask the question, oh, well, what do we think about people who are trying to call a lot of attention to themselves then? You know, so that's my aphorism. But I think it covers a lot of interesting ground that that we've been talking about from really from the start, because we did in our early, early episodes look a lot into the, the notions of uh, mental illness, mental health. Is there a difference between those? Shamanism, the problems of the homeless and outsider artists. And I, as we as we move forward with the series, I, I'm continually uh, encouraged to remember how we're connecting back a lot of interesting material to the very beginning. And I, I think. Yeah, there is some repetition in a rhythmic sense, but I think there's a lot of evolution going on. Um, and speaking of earlier episodes, I think if anyone missed last episode, I think you really do. Um, you owe yourself an opportunity. It That was just off the chain. I really feel, I I was actually really surprised listening back to that. And I thought, wow, um, I can't, I don't know of anything, anyone doing anything like that one. You know, I think that was uh, strange ground. So that's that's, uh, the band and the aphorism. And I had a really, um, I had a wonderful video game challenge for you, but I'm going to hold that over till next week because in the meantime, uh, I had this sort of light uh, nap dream that I thought really had to be pitched to you. Malibu, California home of so many stars, you know, beautiful oasis right on the Pacific, just a little north of Los Angeles, surfing capital, uh, home to many, many mega stars and strangeness. And I thought, you know, we really need uh, a detective show set there. Mm-hmm. So your working title is Malibu Dick. But the challenge here is your protagonist is actually a female. So there's a little play going on in this world. She is a very down-to-earth, pragmatic, 
not flighty, romantic female lead at all. Very straightforward, working class. She thinks and starts her agency off in very humble terms of doing some nasty, gritty spying on adulterers and affairs and divorce and family custody work because hey that's what really the reality is maybe some missing person action however she very soon and incrementally across the shows with each episode being based on the cliffhanger structure she begins to unravel a conspiracy within the Malibu community that is much darker, much vaster, and ripples into all sorts of possible worlds. So your challenge is to set up this rippling, unveiling of conspiracies behind an apparently, you know, straightforward but tawdry private investigator sort of scene in one of America's premier show business communities. And you get to decide sort of the nature of, of the conspiracy, the, the premises of the world. Are we going into some sort of supernatural fantasy? Are we mm -hmm. going into sociopolitical one uh, or all, all of the above? But it's, it's leading us via this very um, relatable young woman late 20s pretty but not too pretty uh not the one crucial element is she is very much at odds with the uh celebrity backdrop of her clients and potential investigatees she's our ordinary person of the street Malibu starts off as being this glittering Oz of strangeness, and then you lead us into some dark curtained world of your creation. Malibu. All D. right. Okay. All right. I like it. Cool. All right. So would you okay. like me to return to our tradition? Because you have sent me a text this time of reading your text back to you. Yeah, I, I think that was a good strategy, Dave. And I, I it, it always helps me focus. And I think you're such a good reader. It helps uh, our listeners engage. So, yeah, I think that's a great idea. All right, here we go. Hope you had a good weekend. Thanks, Chris. I did. Hope you did, too. Here are notes for review for next show. Sort of a screed, but a lot of connections to earlier topics and current ones, too. Think of all the things that you don't know. Where do they go? If all the things that you don't know, and therefore all the things you've forgotten too, are rather are a rather significant aspect of existence, where are they? Well, one answer is that all the things you don't know are in a category. All the things you don't know. As simple-minded as this sounds, it might be the key to understanding the complexity of language and possibly human consciousness. Because this particular category has some remarkable and mysterious properties which may shake up some of the shadows in the dead-end hallways of inquiry into the nature of categories. 
There are so many aspects of existence that are difficult to fathom. I believe we often give up trying. We frequently hit a conceptual wall or find ourselves lost in an amorphous cloud of abstraction, and so shut off our attention, our spirit of inquiry. We each have our own special definitions of the unfathomable, but I suggest we assign confrontations with the unfathomable to a similar kind of state of mind slash psychic terrain, which I liken to uncontrolled territory on 19th century maps, area unexplored. I'm adding here due to ants. We've right. touched on this idea before, but it's core to the Lost Explorer's mission, so deeper penetration. I'm picturing an unsettling yet hypnotic living jungle graveyard badlands, acres of desiccated assumptions, pits of ignored ideas, wild meanders of misunderstood processes, confusion buzzing more like malarial mosquitoes than static electricity. In this chaotic yet strangely consistent marginalia zone of the knowledge, failure, and imaginative refuse, there are creatures that aren't creatures. Faces without bodies. Monstrous, meaningless facts. The one possible defining feature of this obscure realm is an unaccountable, is an unaccountably contradictory sense of monolithic instability. Eerie swampland mists and hallucinogenic crystalline dunes. <clears throat> there are many mirages mingling and ringing like the voices of the ghosts of ghosts. Reading that back, for the third or fourth time. You know what? It strikes me that you've done there. Um, you've provided a bizarro world um, kind of Taoist opposite to Bruno's memory palace. Wow. Yeah. Well, I think that's a really... Uh... That is a beautiful description of of kind of what I what I was trying to do, um, on 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 several different levels of trying to because I love the memory palace idea. I, we I love the the wunderkammer, you know, the cabinet of curiosity idea. Um, that's sort of central to you know the crystal radio idea of lost explorers and that do it yourself home science, home investigation. But the problem with those are is they're static and they also imply a larger sense of uh, the, the curator being in charge of the container, which mm -hmm. is kind of what I'm saying is, is not, I'm saying just the inverse, that in fact we need versions of memory palaces that we get lost in, that we are not the curators of. And that when we have a more liquid and fluid and even aerial sense of, of the contents, um, we don't see them as contents, you know, mm -hmm. and we mm -hmm. may end up being more content ourselves in that view. Um, that was a lovely read. It's, um, does it make any sense? Oh, it makes a hundred percent sense to me. Do you think that um, I was thinking that we could spin off from that and talk about uh, perhaps the the to think utilitarian in a more utilitarian way for a moment, the value of having uh, and all the things you do not know swamp, right? 
it's a cool idea, but I suspect, though I haven't quite put it into words yet, I suspect it's very valuable. I think it's probably, uh, as most opposites are, it's just as valuable as the memory palace. Um, because I do think that you can tell people in today's society that it's important to know what you don't know. But that often gets co-opted by the trust the science type people. It's an uh, invitation to shut up and to stop thinking and to uh, defer to people who've gone to school longer than you for whatever it is that you're talking about. But I love the idea of inhabiting those areas archetypally and imaginatively and finding a way through that inhabitation to make them a part of your whole it's 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 a holism of of both what is known and unknown the palace that sits on the edge of the swamp you know and you as the person within both of them has free reigns to go between both because you know knowing what you don't know there's it still carries an air of so it's best to just leave it alone that i i've mm. never sat comfortably with and i think this flies in the face of that it certainly does. It absolutely does. And I think it harkens back to all of those individuals throughout human history, the human story, whether we know their names or not, whether they were composites of many people and kind of mythic figures, what we count as is culturally preserved living knowledge in any way is the result of exploration in, into those realms in a kind of bold way and in, in a celebration of, of the negative space of what is not known. And the, the interrogation of a kind of weird balance that because this category, if you think of it this way, this is what got me really thinking about it, is that it's so vast, and yet it's also quite portable. It makes, mm -hmm. it can give someone who might give it just a little bit of thought, but not really very much. <laughs> it gives them the, the illusion that they're kind of in control of their ignorance or lack of understanding of the world. They have a way of packaging it. It's a, it's a kind of an all purpose, uh, not a dumping ground for people. They don't really want to see it that way, but it is a way of, well, there's all these things that I can ignore. There are all these things that I don't have to because they're there. It's beyond my understanding or I'm not interested or I forgot. You know, it's a it's a real true mm -hmm. uh, jungle swampland badlands of strangeness that. For the right kind of inquiring mind is it's impossible to keep them out. It's like, you know, mm -hmm. kids, like I think the kind of kids that you and I were, yeah, we see the fence, but we're going over that fence or we're going under the fence. And yeah, there may be blasting caps. You know, I remember as a kid, there were all these public service announcement ads about kids exploring building sites, you know, and they gave you a beautiful, you know, look at what a blasting cap was from a construct. And, and we'd go out looking for those. You know, it's an invitation. Don't ride your bike on the freeway. Well, yes, and wait for a really foggy night 
and try to cross mm -hmm. four lanes and go into a corkscrew, you know, off ramp, because that's what you do. And I think that when it's when knowledge and understanding and the pursuit of mystery is repositioned as that forbidden terrain, you know, the forbidden zone, I think we might get a lot more, you know, young people really inspired, you know, and I think that this is one of the problems with the non-subversive woke approach to, to education of everything being kind of just the right answer, you know, and now we've just changed the right answer to being more the left answer, you know, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. it, we're not getting people out on this, this mission of inquiry and really coming to terms with an enormous category conceptually, psychically within their own being of, well, what do they think when they run up against something they don't know? Well, mm -hmm. oftentimes they shut down, you mm -hmm. know? It, it's a simple, I ask my students sometimes, well, when you're on a, a, a say, a, a public transit bus and you hear people speaking in a different language you don't understand, what happens? Well, mm -hmm. you know, and a lot of them are honest. And they say, well, we just shut down. And I said, oh, so do you, what about, and then every once in a while someone will say, will all pay extra attention to their gestures and their body language to try to work out what's what's going on because I'm I'm curious and I I, I want to know and I'm I if their voice you know gets changes I I want to make sure that you know it, it's cool you know I'm doing it for practical sort of survival and public trance and I said that's curiosity that's what being alert is to something that you don't know you know yeah, yeah. so and and curiosity as we've said on the show is perhaps the most important mode to remain in for as long as you possibly can the other the issue the reason why people i feel are so reticent to go along with this is the absolute dominance of you know science in the past four or five hundred years the physical science physics for example gravity things that have rules, things that are correct or are incorrect. But you spent a lot of time in the world of advertising. So you know better than most that sometimes the most uh, quote unquote correct thing is not what you actually should be doing if you want to sell something properly. And I think that that mindset of you know we have to look at the data and we have to attempt to predict the future by assembling the pieces of the past is fundamentally it's fundamentally wrong right because all you're really doing is painting a picture of things that have happened not necessarily things that are going to happen and i think that hanging out in the swamp of all the things that you do not know um could potentially provide some answers you could be spending some time staring at a strange bug that gets eaten by an, uh, an amphibious frogman, and you could follow the frogman down into the swamp to try to retrieve the fly from its mouth, and you might have a vision of the future doing that. Maybe all the things you don't know, again, being this sort of spiritual archetypal opposite of the memory palace, maybe that, maybe it is the future 
it's scary. It's unpredictable. You don't know what's in it. <clears throat> what if, if existing in the memory palace is a great way to pull things off of shelves in order to develop uh, argument? And, you know, not saying that it's completely devoid of purpose. Of course, memory is important. Understanding the past is important. All that is true. But what if psychically existing in this swamp helps you to fill in that that gap that so many people are missing, which is a little bit of foresight? Well, I think that's very, very uh, on point. It makes me think of uh, an anthropologist that we've mentioned often on the show, Edward T. Hall. He had several really, really important ideas. One of his uh, major books is about the culturally uh, defined nature of time. And um, he was really writing in a very contemporary sort of sense about how, uh, well, for almost for a business audience doing commerce internationally about appreciating and understanding different senses of time and where social time uh, comes from and how it how people tune into it in certain ways. But it strikes me from what you what you just said that uh, I don't know of uh, a speculative anthropology about how different cultures construct the future differently. Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. that would be very fascinating. I think there would be an enormous difference about that. Um, I think that, oh, that's not really good, is it? Um, I think that that has a lot uh, to do with the the category of all the things you don't know. It, the the most important element there is is the whole question of of knowledge and the definition of knowledge, which mm -hmm. is epistemology in in philosophical terms, and every culture has struggled with that. The basis on which something is is known and and who knows it. You know, to go mm -hmm. back to that and Watergate thing. What did the president know and when did he know it? Well, what does it mean for something to be known? And um, when I was thinking about this notion of, of this one kind of all-purpose category, which then becomes, in visual terms, a quite a, a chaotic, intricate, remarkable swamp uh, of, of strangeness. Um, so it's both immensely protean and monstrous and then also gorgeously simple and apparently compact and portable and expandable you know like the pajamas some people wear after thanksgiving dinner you know uh i, I think that the notion that uh what we know and what we don't know makes me think of one of the most uh, well, it's the only fist fight that I've that I can remember that I've gotten into my life that I thought was really ridiculous and completely absurd and a comment on on something much bigger. I happened to be um, in the kind of mode that I'm in now. And I was at a barbecue with uh, some other people. And uh, this is a long time ago, but I think it's still sort of very much applies. And these were smart people, and I, I really do give them more credit than what came forward. But for whatever reason, I was talking in about if uh, 
you didn't have any access to the internet and you couldn't refer to any body of knowledge outside your own resourcefulness, how would you provide some demonstrable evidence or at least a demonstrable performed argument that the earth orbits the sun and not vice versa? I mean, and my you know comment was, I, I think that is humanity's greatest insight into the universe. Um, it's an insight upon which many other insights hinge. There are many, you know, interconnecting uh, elements of, of knowledge and observation and demonstration in the world. And it's also something that many people have, have really died for. To some extent, Bruno, who, Giorno Bruno, who is the sort of inventor of the memory palace idea, he was, was executed uh, burned alive at the stake in, in the field of flowers in Rome to a large extent because of his support for the heliocentric theory. And mm -hmm. he was a brilliant lecturer across, uh, well, across the channel in England. He was, he, mm -hmm. he certainly didn't claim to invented the idea. He obviously didn't. It's, it's a very old idea, but in terms of the presentation in his time, his lifetime with the emergence of, of Kepler and Galileo and a real beginnings of, a solid paradigm shift. He was one of the important proponents of that and a beautifully articulate uh, presenter. And in, in, uh, Michael Faraday would later, you know, have that same gift of being able to just explain things and make it clear and make it interesting to people. So I asked this group at the barbecue, you know, what would they do? And they got a couple of people got really offended. And one I don't know. I really just got up one guy's nose and he said, well, what, you know, we don't need to do that because it's already been done, you know, da, 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 da. and it ended up escalating. And of course, I think there were a few beers involved more on his part than on mine. And um, I realized that there was no sense of fun, subversive curiosity here at all, or willing to mm -hmm. go along with the program. What he was really saying is, I don't know. I, I know this because other people in the past have known it. And I don't want you reminding me at a barbecue, especially when there's a pool next, you know, right there. Uh, and I've had a few beers that I really don't know what I'm talking about. And I, I really don't have the, the ability to, to demonstrate why this is true. All I do is just follow the science because that's what being educated and of status means today. It didn't mean that 500 years ago necessarily in every instance, but I only say I know it is what he was really saying. He, he didn't really have any understanding at all. And this is really the nature of education. This is where we're, you know, we're all at this level on, on, in multiple ways. We really don't know the answer to a lot of questions. And a lot of us really are kind of embarrassed or lazy and just don't want to get involved. And we don't want to uh, to reinvent the wheel as the cliche goes. And I often say to people, well, the most valuable learning experience I've ever had was trying to make a wheel, you know? Right. Try to make right. a wheel really. And uh, that's the nature of what education is really about. Because if you can actually make a wheel from scratch, 
and have it work in any kind of capacity because wheels, that's a big category. If you can do that, then you're maybe on to some other things. But right. if you're of the view that, well, that's known, we've done that, been there, done that, we can now move on. Uh, well, then you might fall in the pool as that individual mm -hmm. did. Mm -hmm. I think too, that you can relate this guy's fear of what he doesn't know to a fear of death. I think that this outsourcing of knowledge bases can be traced back to a, a want for efficiency. There are people who want things to be efficient, even though efficiency isn't always necessarily optimal in every situation. You don't want to be efficient when you're having sex. At least I would hope you wouldn't want to be efficient then. But I do think that people like to just be, this is some of my students too, they like to, for the answer to be given to them, right? Because, okay, cool. I got it. I can move on. I can move on. And it's this fear. I have this finite amount of time. What am I going to do? Sit around and <clears throat> think about things? Well, why don't you just tell me? How about the people who have already figured this out? Why don't they just tell me? Um, I think that in terms of, uh, to go back to Bruno for a second, one thing that really got him in trouble too was heliocentrism for sure, but his extrapolation from that, that therefore there are probably other galaxies like ours, right? The plurality um, of worlds, yes. Yeah, the plurality of worlds. And I think that if you look at that metaphorically at you know the the metaphor of heliocentrism is that we're not the center of our galaxy so we're not the center of the world we personally us are not the center and then this idea of of pluralism in terms of galaxies further messes with that idea by saying not only are we not the center but there are all these other places that we don't know and will will never know and that became too much for these people but i wonder if part of that anger comes from you know recognizing that the things that you don't know suddenly opens up time in a way that people become very uncomfortable with right it's like looking at all the books in a library <clears throat> and having the realization that you will never read them all you you can't possibly read them all and i think that there are people who dedicate their lives to becoming, you know, the fastest readers in the world or the most read up on current politics of the time, right? The irony of it being that they end up using up all their life trying to most efficiently absorb as much information as they possibly can. The swamp, when you think of a swamp, you think of muck and quicksand and getting stuck in it, right? I'm obsessed with this idea. I know I keep coming back to the swamp, but it's just so cool to me to think that you could create an imaginative realm where you intentionally get bogged down mm -hmm. in the things that you don't know. It's directly flies in the face of what I think a lot of very frightened people have been pushing against since human beings have been doing this thing that we call science and efficiency and economics and architecture, right? It's about slowing down. I'm big on slowing down right now. I want to slow things down and I want to revel in the high school football game and mowing my lawn with a very 
inefficient push reel lawnmower and not knowing things and being able to explore those things slowly, sometimes painfully slowly with a two-year-old, right? There's real, there's, there's beauty in this, right? Swamps are beautiful in their own way. Well, this ties back to uh, the allegory of the telephone booth, the big idea we rolled out two yep. episodes ago and, and have been looking at because the first takeout there was about tempo, tempo, you know, mm-hmm. and what you're really talking about is is a changing your own psychic tempo or feeling like you are captain of that to some extent in an important way and savoring that and making that work in a really rich, qualitative way that defines its own environment and in in, in changing your tempo. Mm-hmm. You really do change the, the shape of this category swamp of all the things that you don't know. And you can really enjoy it in this giant spectacular, uh, you know, if you imagined it as a really dimensional sort of map, I mean, everything could be hyperlinked to lead to many other things. I mean, for instance, you mentioned the idea of being bogged down, which is a beautiful, beautiful word and beautiful, uh, well, it's a beautiful geographic concept of like a mire like grimpen mire pound in the baskets but i mean ezra pound once emblematized all of poetry as being a magic spell to get a cow freed from a bog you know that's that was i mean what a beautiful way to poetry is what the cow herder or owner is is shouting to the cow and to the gods and to the mire to the bog to get mm-hmm. the this trapped cow free that's poetry that's one definition of it and that would be one little hyperlink thing in this giant you know dimensional swampland mystery maze of so many levels of both confusion and what's peculiar genuine knowledge that's what's also hiding amongst the ignored the forgotten the Mm -hmm. unfathomable you know or the boring and uninteresting there are some things that are genuinely known by people and that is a very good incentive to go exploring because they may be very they may be surprised they may be surprised to see something you know familiar in what by definition should be a land of total strangeness isn't that Mm -hmm. all you know Mm -hmm. right and i this brings to mind you know you are very much for exact language you're somebody who uh as a writer and also in the way that you think words have to mean what they mean and be in their proper place, right? No malpropisms. You want them to to work in that way. How do you see that exacting language existing within the swamp of all the things that you don't know? I think that it it um that's a that's a phenomenally important question. And it it's one to explore from as many different 
you know, points of view is, is, is possible. Uh, and that is a way of exploring uh, this swamp or, or region of uncontrolled uh, shadow forms. I think it's the only way, really. It's certainly our, our best tool is language. It's also our, our most deceptive. And we have to then sort of ask the question, well, how much do we depend on it? And my first answer is, is I think what there is a quality to language, which, and I think it is, of course, separate, you know, or unique to each major language. But I think underlying them all, if there's any kind of congruence between them, and if there's any shared origins, which we believe there, there are, um, there is a deep, deep grammar that is likened to the notion of music. And I, I use as an analogy, musical scales. You know, the pentatonic scale is very different than the pygmy scale, or what's called the pygmy scale. Um, and you don't, but you don't have to know anything about music or about the the physics of um, auditory phenomenon. You, you don't. You could just, as long as you have reasonable hearing, you can hear a difference. You can hear a structural difference. Uh, the the basis of say North African trance music, you can hear the connection between North Indian classical music, meditative, there's a lot of cultural similarity in the purposes, the context, the environments, everything about where that music comes from. There are linkages and connections and ripples that go backwards and forward. And there are certain percussive patterns, deep rhythms. Um, we know that certain scales of music have a particular effect that many, many different kinds of people will react to a piece of music predominantly in D minor in a similar sort of way. Mm -hmm. So I think mm -hmm. that underneath and through, permeating through language, are some very, very deep uh, structural linkages with all of the things that we don't know. And a large part of our problem, I think, starts with a question of, to what extent do we feel we're composed of the universe in real, very, you know, just fundamental terms? Or are we somehow permanently distinct from it? But the more we think of ourselves as absolutely composed and emblematic of the universe, the more we might then understand that language is, is too. And that language, if we can access deeper levels of it, intuitive, almost pre-semantic, you know, levels, uh, then we may get access to, to new levels of meaning and knowledge. It's the people who really need literal, concrete language and are not able to adjust to context, context or inflection or what's not said. You know, I mean, that's where, you know, it, that's such an important part of of understanding communication and understanding humans at large. But but I think the whole world, what's not there, the negative space, the, the silence, the break, the breathing room, 
you know, on, on, with all of our senses, there's, there's, yeah, there's information that can be seen as positive projection. But without the backdrop of something, whether we call that negative space or silence or whatever, I mean, we don't have any perception, let alone understanding. So I think that's a long way around saying the music before the meaning of language becomes the clue and the the treasure map towards larger and more helpful levels of meaning. Does that make any sense? It does. It does. I would like to tease that out more on the next episode. I'd also like to talk about the other text you sent me, which I'll leave for listeners now. I grab my phone because this is really cool too. And to me, I told Chris that this felt so self-evident to me that it doesn't need a ton of explanation, but it's a great launching point. And I think it will absolutely tie into uh, the the swamp and the music of what he's talking about, because that music to me sounds a lot like play. Uh, you texted me, holy shit. I just realized that games organize rules, not vice versa. Think of the phrase, the play of light and shadow. Fundamental to vision, our dominant sense, we forget the verb form in hiding to play. So I think there is a link between what you're saying about the musicality of language, the context with, with which it's in, the human spirit of play by which we utilize that language and approaches to both the memory palace and the swamp of the unknown. I do think there's a link there, and I think we can tease that out next time. I think that's beautifully said, David. I that that is <clears throat> that articulation is enormously helpful to me. It's it's very encouraging. Uh, I think that you really pinned uh, and yet kept very very vital and alive something that I was really trying to get across there, and I think that is a great project to sort of move into over the next you know maybe a couple of shows to to really flesh mm -hmm. that out because i think that the this image of a very peculiar kind of swamp upon which an enormous amount of our day-to-day -day life depends so we've got a lot of, of of you know the things that we need to be confident in day to day the things we do know right the things that we may even be responsible for we've got them kind of dependent on a very very murky strange mysterious but wonderful uh potential playground a playground of possibility if we had the right spirit of inquiry of innocence enjoyment of of subversion and an acceptance of contradictions, you know, if, if we moved into that uncontrolled territory, this, this strange terrain of mirage and confusion with a kind of appreciation of the possibility, um, I think we might find a lot more familiarity and potential resource for us to draw upon. Absolutely. Would you like to hear my Malibu dick? I'm, I'm hanging out for Malibu dick, man. Really quick, before I get started, did we give this detective a name? No, we didn't. That's up to you. Okay, I'm not going to. Uh, okay. Because I was, I was busy with plot. Okay. Um, we'll call her the detective for this okay. 
That's fun. I kind of like that. See, that's a little subversion of the trope too. Because, you know, she might be warm or cool enough for us to identify. We don't need, I like that. See, good. Already it's good. The detective is hired by a surfer who is convinced that his rival is affecting the waves around his home so that he cannot practice. This leads her to a cult leader, this man, who genuinely does believe that he controls the chaos of the waves. He's furious at her client, his former lover, for screwing him out of a Red Bull deal. As a side anecdote, it's really funny. Red Bull was the worst tested soft drink product in the history of soft drinks in terms of taste. People absolutely hated it. Uh, and yet it sells 6 billion cans a year. Uh, wow, I didn't after, know that. After discovering this, she investigates the Malibu Moon Palace, which this this cult leader owns, a temple to Isis nightclub where partygoers run around and drag and pause during a blue moon to pray for the return of Osiris. The next day, her client, his body washes up on the beach. All the parts are discovered except for his penis. This begins a kaleidoscopic trip through a cult Malibu, a rogues gallery of plastic surgery, woke celebrity nightmares, and Nepo baby burnouts, all leading to our hero getting to the headquarters of a popular energy drink that I might have mentioned earlier, derived from the testicles of bulls and their plan to use magic to harness the power of an empty weaponized moon that has started ringing like a bell in the night sky. Oh my. Oh my. I wanted to literalize the dick in the title and get some real female versus male energy going on with the moon and you know, the fact that it's going to become a, a, a sort of phallic weapon and the missing penis and the gay men. <clears throat> I thought that uh, we could we could play with those themes because of the title. Of course, the tone of the show, because it is episodic, uh, will have a, a, a nice cast of characters, punchy dialogue. We might even do a monster of the week every once in a while, but there's this overarching crying of lot 49 conspiracy that starts to come to a head towards the end of the season. David, I think that was just a, a thing of wonder and fascination. I, I really, um, to our listeners, I, I swear that David had did not have any advance notice about this. And not only was he able to come up with, I think a wonderful sort of premise development, but just in the, what he read back was you know, the ability to actually write and keep a parallel line of development while we've been having this discussion, which is, you know, I think at a reasonably, uh, you know, exacting level of, of, of intellect and spirit. And I think that is an exactly beautiful presentation performance of what I'm trying to, you know, encourage with this method yeah. of a parallel uh, processing and it was just absolutely rich and, and a wonderful thing to listen to and this is also a very very good uh link back directly to what i was saying about the the underlying grammar of music within language 
that it is a psychological appeal for us to listen to and to engage. And another reason for people to read aloud more and to share and for writers to certainly be, you know, sharing their work aloud with other people, because I just felt that was just that met every definition of, of what I mean by music and poetry. And uh, it also had a, a an engagingly sort of surprising subversive edge of not being predictable in that obvious melody sort of sense of, of like, well, you hear a couple of notes and then you know where it's going. That's not what, what storytelling, that's not what poetry, that's not what surprise, that's not what subversion actually is. And I go back to a, a quotation of Coleridge, which I just, I can never escape. I think it's one of the most important in my life. It's from the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. It mingled strangely with my fears yet it felt like a welcoming. And I think that is the essence of what surprise and subversion in art. And when we talk today about inclusion and welcoming and stuff, and eh, no, we're not really talking about that. We're really talking about exclusion and forms of, of dislike, if not hatred processed in a kind of virtuous sort of seeming way. What really is, is welcoming and what it, it mingles with our, our fears of, of what is unknown or what we might have overpredicted, you know, but you take mm -hmm. the magician's uh, risk and deliver familiarity and surprise. And that's the essence of the whole game in terms of, of, of story and music and understanding and teaching and learning and lovemaking and building lives. And, you know, it's that. Yeah. That's exactly yeah. Well, it. thank you. Thank you very much. I'm glad that you enjoyed that. I, um, I couldn't agree more. A lot of my fellow teachers have been, you know, kind of shocked at how comparatively well I'm performing, uh, in terms of other teachers and, you know, what sort of what they expected. And, you know, I showed up for metal detector duty today, which is an unfortunate <laughs> thing in 2023 that you have to act as a TSA agent for one week out of the month. But, uh, you know, they said like, how did you, you know, we didn't have your phone number. How did you remember to, to be here today at 710? And I, well, of course to them, I just said, oh, I, you know, I keep a, I keep a notebook. I don't keep a notebook though. I think this show has just, I just remember things usually. Um, and more importantly, you know, when you're in a classroom full of kids who are, uh, at times trying to throw you off track you you can be thrown off track but mm -hmm. you still have a track going you still yeah. have one track going it's like doctor who having two hearts right so he can be shot in one heart and the other one keeps going nice. uh, that's that's one of the utilitarian values i think in having two tracks and also also it's just fun something just occurred to me while you were speaking while you were giving me that great praise uh which I do appreciate, and as everybody does, occasionally needs to hear, um, you know, whenever I'm looking to carve out time for writing novels, I just realized like, oh, I I write these little bits while I'm talking to Chris. You know, we'll be talking and I'll be typing as we're talking. There's really nothing stopping me from doing that with a whole novel, just kind of always writing it while I'm doing something else. Might be an interesting experiment to try um but thank you 
Well, I think that you should, you know, try that experiment more explicitly, but I would suggest that we're all doing that. If, you know, if we're inclined to be creative, we, we always are, and we have access to that, that, that channel, uh, mm. and, you know, feeding rivers into the bigger river. We, 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 we can get access to that whenever we want. I think that we're often choosing you know, not to, and thinking that we can't when we maybe just need to stretch a little bit more. But no, that was really cool. I really, uh, and I, I, I liked every aspect of it. I think I even I like you know the not naming the the star, just the detective. Something that's really that's a different, that's a little point of difference right there. You know, mm-hmm. I love that. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, do you have a tip and a tool for us today? Yeah. Okay. So I'll start off with the tool. I want to just a little moment of background about it. I was I was thinking back to our our notions about human evolution and the divergence from of Homo sapiens from you know the other branches of of primates that we know and how how that came to be. And there's sort of I realize there there are two basic paradigms in place there. One is it happens suddenly for whatever reason. And Terence McKenna, we can look to as, I mean, what his core thesis was the discovery of uh, hallucinogens, particularly psilocybin mushrooms, that that caused an expansion of consciousness that actually physically changed the structure of the brain and, and really blew open humanity. And there are other examples of this. There are other things that happen suddenly. Um, extraterrestrial intervention. Uh, is is another thought divine intervention we we kind of end up whatever the sudden quality is it always has a little bit of a, a tinge of the miraculous in some way so the other approach and i think there really are only two here is the gradual evolutionary one and a lot of people put that forward as being more pragmatic and it doesn't mean it's something miraculous or magical and I was just thinking to myself, well, actually, it's actually more magical because you're counting on more different things, more different factors converging in some sort of cause and effect way. So you're appearing to argue more pragmatically, but you've actually complicated things very much. Whereas the sudden people, yeah, they do have a kind of miracle thing there. But if you accept their the, any of their ideas, then you've got your answer. So... I realized that for something as complicated as the emergence of of Homo sapiens, you really have gradually or suddenly. There isn't any other answer. So my tool here is try to identify for yourself. Sure, other people have thought of it, and maybe you've thought of it in different ways, but try to identify and articulate a major structural binary that you really have never fully articulated and walked around yourself before, you know? Because if you can really have that thought within your being and that you have really taken on board, then it's not like, you know, the 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 guy at the barbecue who really didn't know why or how to demonstrate that the earth does orbit the sun and not vice versa. You, you have some ownership of an idea, but once you really pick out, because we live in this era of, 
you know, trying to break down binaries. And you and I have been talking about this since the, the first episodes. We'll try to identify a, a genuine structural binary that's really something that you don't think about very often, something that's beyond the cliches of, of night and day, life and death, something that is, uh, I mean, is there a third possibility, a third kind of time where it's neither gradual nor instantaneous, you know? So that's my tool. And try to engage with some major structural binary that you, it's a little bit of, you know, it's very much homemade DIY, you know, garage philosophy, but it's something that would, would occur to you that then might open up some doors and ways of thinking about many other kinds of binaries. Because of course, a lot of the binaries that we talk about today aren't really binaries. They should be thought in other ways. And we've said this oscillations, dualities, you know, mm-hmm, what do we mm-hmm, really mm-hmm. mean by either or zero or one binary? That's that's a big claim. Are these things really that that opposed, or or are we just thinking about them incorrectly? And my tip kind of comes out of this because, uh, and it's again something that we've talked about in various different ways. But uh, the I Ching is a great example. Um, tarot is a great example. We can apply this in so many ways. But my tip is interrogate randomness whenever you can you know whether it's just flipping open uh, a book and reading you know the first paragraph I mean just think about that for a moment how random is that you're going to have made that selection of that book based on certain facts like how close was the book to you but there are all sorts of filtration systems in play around us all the time And I wonder how easy it is to really be random, to be truly unpredictable, to be Mm. truly unique and individual. And I think if we start to put some real pressure in an inverse sense on ourselves this way, we start to realize, hmm, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is actually, you know, kind of what a lot of interesting artists like John Cage and many of us have been trying to tell us is that that their chance and randomness uh, aren't that easily achieved. And so maybe we need to revise a lot of these unknown, unfathomable ideas out in our swamp about luck and chance and destiny and fate and all of these things that we kind of, we're not really sure about. And we muddle around in a metaphysics that really looks kind of uh, like a hogskin mermaid from an old 19th century carnival, you know? So love it. Brilliant. I'm digging it. Did you dream? I did. And this kind of brings to my, I had, I've had a very interesting, uh, fairly rich and complex dream situation uh, over the last few, well, over the last week since we last spoke. But I thought I would bring these two points to mind because they emphasize or kind of reinforce that uh, duality oscillation between the emblematic, very single imaged focused dream with the more chaotic notion of noise and ceremony and those narrative dreams that we have. 
in the first example, um, more than Floyd Mayweather, the boxer, I was focused on the jumpsuit he was wearing. I think most people would know that he's a real clothes horse and very, very conceited and involved in his self-image. He spends a reputed $60,000 on haircuts per month, and he doesn't have any real hair. Um, but he was wearing a jumpsuit made of some unknown, but obviously extremely expensive looking material. And the color was in the sort of pink sort of zone of salmon to sort of velvet rose, but it would change color like wine in a glass, depending on the angle of the sun. And mm -hmm. it was a really sort of beautiful vision of, of him where he was kind of almost receding in and out of this suit with the suit having almost more reality than, than he did. So that image was in one sense. And then I had uh, an experience um, directly linked to uh, J.W. Dunn's beautiful book, An Experiment with Time, which is something that, that uh, Dave and I have talked about. We recommend it to everyone. It's an important book about uh, dream and uh, foretelling or uh, in any way, sort of a sense of clairvoyant vision of the future. William Burroughs wrote quite a bit about it. Uh, and I don't want to summarize exactly Dunn's point because he was a serious scientist and an amateur investigator. And his book, An Experiment with Time, is just worth reading to, to get the fullness of his thesis and how how his evolutionary consciousness evolved into that because he got curious about it. It was like someone who really gets curious about deja vu and starts to really journal it and really starts to analyze it and tries to move that forward. But in this case, I had a kind of uh, prevision of uh, Jimmy Buffett, the singer songwriter and enormously successful music entrepreneur's death he just recently died of a, a very sort of rare form of skin cancer. But people would know that he was, uh, you know, uh, most famous for Margaritaville and, you know, a, a pretty good songwriter. He was friends with Jerry Jeff Walker. He was a huge AM star in the 19, late 1970s. But no one would have predicted that that would become this mega empire of hotels and resorts. And, you know, he sold the lifestyle of the Caribbean or Key West, Florida, and a mix of Hawaii. He sold that into snowbird people, you know, stuck in uh, Milwaukee and in Sandusky, Ohio, in, you know, in, in wintertime. He gave them a, a vision of being permanently on holiday, but not being tourists, but being locals. Mm -hmm. So in my dream, I had this, this pre-echo of his death, which is a crucial part of this experiment with time idea that J.W. Dunn investigates. But it raises an interesting question. And this is, I think, something really, really important for us all in this era of, of the Internet and media saturation and, and atmospheric noise and signal, you know, all around us all the time. Because it, I recognize that it is possible that I had heard about it and I just wasn't as consciously tuned into it. So in my dream, the experience was, I, I had a fore, forecast, foretelling, prevision, 
but it was short term. It was, you know, it wasn't something, you know, Nostradamus like I'm looking forward even even a year or two. You know, it was very short term. So it's right on this edge of, and I think that the really hard, you know, minded people would go, ah, you just heard about that. You just, you know, it it just right. came in, it just came in through another channel while you were scanning other news or uh, and it's for you know it's not that surprising because he is he was seventy six so it's not like he was you know, but then I thought to myself when you and I started the idea of looking at dreams and and me were sort of providing it there was a Jimmy Buffett dream it was mm-hmm. quite a vivid fully detailed fully envisioned one so. As with Robert Redford, which we discovered last episode, is kind of a little weird repeating celebrity in in my mind. Jimmy Buffett is there, too, in an odd way. And uh, I don't really have an explanation for that. There is a Margaritaville in Las Vegas. Um, He's a writer and he wrote some crime novels. I, I, I have reasons to think of him, but... It just reminded me that that uh, there are some weird little things about our own uh, dream experiences that are worth recording. And I think that there is a body of, of interesting literature about the dream experience. And J.W. Dunn's Experiment with Time, an experiment with time, is a great read to to enrich, I think, our own decoding of, of our dream lives. The Are Jimmy you Buffett that book? Yes, yes, I am. Oh. I am familiar with that. Yes, he was. Um, it was um, serialism, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. yeah. That I have that. That's a very complex book. Uh, and it, well, do you want to say a little bit more about that? Because that's worth a connection. Because it kind of, if you look at his, these are very yeah. interesting things that he was interested in on the side. These were purely. Uh, well, they were professional interests, but they were really labors of love that he was just, he couldn't shake the curiosity in them. Yeah. So Dunn um, had a problem with the idea of right now. He had an issue with the idea that science had never uh, really been able to pinpoint what it is that we're existing in right at this very moment. And so uh, experiment in time, he talks about uh, precognitive dreams that he has, like you were saying, um, uh, how some people could go down a rabbit hole with deja vu done was, was basically, uh, this book was in the twenties, late twenties, right? Yeah. Some, something like yeah. that. Um, yeah. he, he was, I don't know enough to, to say whether he was uh, ahead of his time necessarily, but he was sort of talking about a, uh, a quantum, existence right this idea that that time exists in a, in a way um where we are arranging it serially sequentially in in this kind of line and he had an issue with that he was also a um he was a proponent of um uh didn't he have a book like nobody dies or something like he like the idea that that you get uh reborn essentially right that 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 you don't necessarily end because you you can't necessarily I'm I'm stumbling here because it's been a long time since I've uh thought about done but that's what I've got right now is 
serialism, the idea of, of sequentializing time like that, uh, and the problem with now and the, the key thing with the, the experiment in time is the, <clears throat> um, what was I just saying? Uh, precognitive dreams, right? Those being real things. And he gives, you know, uh, examples of that, right? The, he, he talks about his precognitive dreams a lot. And in his uh, estimation, those are, uh, for lack of a better term, real and worth paying attention to. I think that's a good start. You know, it would be really fun for us to do like an Esalen Institute weekend workshop just on that one author and, and his yeah. just kind of a, a, a teasing out of what you've described because it was enormously influential in the eyes of several of our really key heroes, people like Burroughs and J.G. Ballard, Philip K. Dick. Um, and yet I think a lot of younger people don't have any idea about it and it does fit into a whole framework that sits comfortably with people like terence mckenna and alan watts and john Lilly, and um that speculative ground where a scientific and even mathematically trained mind turns towards implications of some very lateral ideas and working them out with a degree of precision despite a kind of Mysterian occult quality to them, they're able to keep looking at them and to not turn away. And they mm -hmm. apply this strange native precision or logic that they bring to things um, and, and just follow that where it leads. And I think that is where the problem, the questions in Dunn's mind about uh mortality and incarnation and reincarnation i think it comes out of the logic of of the serialism project i, I i'll go back to to that book because I, I that's one of the ones i brought from australia because i just found him so interesting um but there's some really amazing people who are coalescing around some of these these top upton sinclair the the writer of of the jungle you know the the sort of muckraking mm -hmm. journal who broke open that's he's actually did an enormous amount of uh social justice investigation he was very interested in 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 telepathy and and in the whole mm -hmm. realms mm -hmm. of, of esp from an extremely pragmatic point of view that just can't be dismissed in a you know as an airy fairy kind of thing no 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 it's right. much more going on there so i think some really yeah. cool things really cool things there yeah, I think a series on Dunn would be really cool. Um, I'd like to uh, read that book. And um, yeah, I think that that this has been something that we've talked about, whether it's Charles Fort or Edward T. Hall, who's not as, uh, uh, he's not of the same time as Dunn and Fort. Um, but that kind of, uh, you know, turn of the century, turn of the, I should say, 19th to 20th century uh, weirdo thinker where all these things could exist as one is it's where we already are. And it's where people should come back to, you know, like maybe one day I'll try to build a time machine in my garage because why not? Maybe I'll go down that rabbit hole. Maybe I'll, uh, you know, try to, 
contact other dimensions on a CB radio or something like that. I just, I love the idea of, of non, non sense in terms of curiosity and, and, and thinking and that, but. but yeah. Well, it links beautifully with, with, you know, the outsider artist themes that we've looked at and, you know, thinking about building a time machine, Alfred Jerry, who, you know, the inventor of the idea of pataphysics, a wonderful subversive mm -hmm. shift on uh, physics. Uh, he wrote a beautiful, beautiful, straight essay with instructions on how to build a time machine. And it's just a lovely, uh, it's a shame he didn't live longer. He, he died, I think, quite young, 29. I think he was had a real alcohol problem, but he was a genius and he was a very uh, important absurdist dramatist. But in his essay, How to uh, Construct a Time Machine, he really uses that that kind of practical mind to analyze, well, what, what would it need to do, you know? And I think it would be wonderful for more artistic, you know, writerly people to engage with that kind of speculative precision uh, right. Those those people who, you know, they're not easily pinned down to being just well. Let's just think of anything. You know, it could be not. No, 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 no. They're bringing some weird, uh, handmade tools into the wilderness. Mm. You know, and I I think that's really cool.